Amen. Good morning, church. You doing all right? Yeah, good. You're like inviting my time until kickoff. I get it. I get it. Uh, just uh, a quick informal poll. Patriots fans? Who's going for the Patriots? Okay, no one's a fan of the Patriots, right? Okay, got a one fan who doesn't, and he's from Britain. He doesn't understand football. So... No, so no problem there. Uh, Rams? Anybody cheering for the Rams? Okay, a few more. A few more. Those are all the Dodger fans in the room, in case you didn't catch on. Uh, Cheering for uh, food in a decent game. Anybody in here? There we go. There we go. Yeah, in good conscience, I can't really, like, throw my weight behind a team. I don't feel like not that it would matter anyway. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so we're excited. We're here. You're here with us this morning. My name is Peter again. If you uh, walked in a little bit late, I'm a senior pastor here at FBH. We're excited that you're here. You caught us at a, uh, at a good time if you're new with us. And one of the things that I failed to mention on those, uh, on those Connect cards that you have, um, if you are new with us and you filled out that Connect card, uh, in, the, in the foyer right as you're leaving, there's a spot, uh, our guest service table out there, uh, if you hand them your Connect card, only if you're new, okay, we, uh, we have a gift for you that they would love to be able to, to give to you. For all of those people who call this place their church home, there's baskets in the back, there's ushers in the back who will be happy to, uh, to grab those Connect cards on your way out. Um, anyway, we're, uh, we're launching into a brand new series called Everybody Always, and I alluded to this a little bit last week. Um, this sermon is, uh, this series rather, is based on a book written by a man by the name of Bob Goff. Um, and so if, uh, uh, if you're one of those people who likes to look for new literature and maybe try something out new and read something different, uh, Bob Goff's books are, uh, are really, really good. This is a follow-up to his first book that was a, a New York Times bestseller. That book um, was called Love Does. Also a New York Times bestseller. It's called Everybody Always. And just to give you a, uh, an understanding of Bob Goff and his personality and legitimately uh, a person who does indeed love everybody always is in the back of his first book. And like I said, this is a New York Times bestseller. What he did is he had his publisher actually put his real cell phone number in the back of the book just in case anybody wanted to call him and hang out with him. Right now, we're talking millions upon millions of copies have been printed of this book, have been sold of this book, and it is his real cell phone. I have a buddy of mine who called him because they both live down south, and he said he called him. Bob Goff answered the phone himself; it wasn't a secretary. And he said, "Bob, I'm going to Disneyland. He lives close to Disneyland. He's like, I would love to go ride uh, Space Mountain with you." And Bob was like, great, give me a date. And so my friend gave him a date and he's like, ah, I'm traveling to Uganda that day. I can't do it that day. Um, but it is, a, he is the real deal. And so if nothing else, go pick up Love Does because you could make some prank calls to a, a real famous author. Um, but in this series, we're going to be looking at it, me, what it means to love people. And we're going to look deeply into some different Bible stories and combine those stories with, with real-life application in order for us to gain a better perspective of what it looks like to love people and specifically what it looks like to love everybody always. 
And I wanted to start with, uh, with loving people because what we're going to see throughout the year is as we've, as we've talked about our mission, we talk about the vision of our church and the fact that we want to love God and love people and serve the world. Our first sermon series should be love. Notoriously, church is really, really good at that. Okay? We are good at loving God well. When I talked through during our vision, uh, our vision month, specifically Vision Sunday, that first one, I talked about the things that we did well. And one of those things was a spiritual discipline that we have as a church, that we are consistently striving after God. One of the things, though, that came up in, uh, as I did my research and Growing Healthy Churches did research regarding uh, our congregation, is that really we had become internally focused. All of our chairs were facing inward rather than outward. And so one of the things that I wanted to do then is start with how to love people well, to start out with a little bit of a challenge for us uh, as we make our way into the year. Um, And I also want to start here because loving people well is incredibly difficult to do. It's one of the hardest things to do. The concept is, is simple. We in this room uh, would all agree with it. We would all agree that we should love people, but everybody always incredibly hard to do. And my assumption would be that, that if we were to take an informal poll in the room, there would be a lot of people in here who feel like they should be doing more to love people. We have that good Baptist guilt going on. We're like, I'm not doing enough. I need to be doing more, right? There's always like this, this piece of us inside of us saying, you know what? I could be doing more. You're right. I could be doing more to love people. And it's because oftentimes with Christianity, there tends to be a feeling that we are never doing enough. We're never accomplishing what Christ has set out for us to do. And, and a, a small piece of that is indeed true. The way in which we were created to love people, the way in which we were created to love God, all the way back, if you look at the fall of man in, in Genesis, right? If you look at that, that we, we were in perfect communion with God, walking hand in hand, strolling in the garden with God. There was this un, unfettered fellowship with God. But then sin creeps into the world and as sin crept its way into the world and we have the fall of man, all of a sudden we have this disconnect with God. And so as we cannot love God to the best of our ability because has entered in, and so because of that, we're able to love people. We are no longer able to love people to the best of our ability, to the intend, to the intention of our ability, rather the intention of our creation. That's what I'm trying to say. So we're no longer able to do that. It's incredibly difficult to do. And oftentimes loving people comes out of this sense of duty that we need to be doing more. Jesus told us we we need to be doing more. So if we aren't doing more, Jesus is going to be upset with us, which ultimately we know isn't true. There is no way that Jesus could actually love us any less. He just wants us wants what's best for us. The way we need to understand loving people is through the overflow of Christ's love for us. Right. John Piper says it well. John Piper wrote the most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than them. Which I thought was incredibly profound as I read it, because so often we say, "Okay, I'm going to leave church and you know what I'm going to I'm just going to seek out people and love people really, really well today. And then ultimately it fades off because we get exhausted. Right. You're like, I can't pull my car over again to help another person again. Right. We just get tired because serving and loving people isn't coming from a place of overflow, isn't coming from a place of loving God first. And that quote from Piper, it sounds backwards. How do we love people 
best by loving someone else better than them. Well, welcome to the greatest commandment recorded in Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what we're going to do best to read this series is how do we best love our neighbors? Because we're going to continue to march through that idea and we are going to see it again this morning. That we are to first and foremost love God and love people. This is going to keep coming up. If you're tired of this, sorry. It's going to keep coming up. These are the greatest commandments, right? The greatest commandment, singular. Love God and love people. And we're going to, this morning, we're going to take a hard look at Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 25. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip them over there. Okay, go ahead and, and stick your thumb there. But I want to talk through a, uh, a couple things first. What I want to take a, a second and look at is the first 24 verses in that passage that take us up to verse 25. Because the first 24 verses in chapter 10 paint a picture of Jesus sending out a whole bunch of his followers two by two, giving them authority to cast hands, giving them authority to heal people. And, and all of these followers, they, they come back and they're, they're all jacked up and they're excited about what they were able to do. And Jesus tells them essentially, Hey guys, don't, don't be excited because you were able to do all this stuff. Be excited because you got a chance to do all of this stuff in my name. Right, And that's what's happening really in the first 24 verses here. But it's just a small little twist, right? It's just, it's just a small enough distortion for us to be like, oh yeah. And that's what happens in our spiritual lives on a regular basis. When we go out, we want to love people. What often happens is, man, we get so excited because we're doing things, we're loving people, and we're stopping and fixing, fixing tires that are flat on the side, whatever it may be. And we get so excited because, man, did you hear what I did? Which is fine. Serving people, morality, that's a good thing. That being said, is we need to be excited not because we did it. We need to be excited because we did it in the name of the Lord. Right? It's just a small, just a small little twist. And this happens to the disciples too. So if you're like, man, I'm never going to measure up. It's okay. 12, 12 men changed the world a long time ago and you're a whole lot more intelligent than they are. Were. But it leads directly back to what we're talking about a second ago doing these things in his name, that we don't do things in our own power so Jesus will be in turn happy with us. We should do things and get excited because Jesus had commissioned us to do them and gave us authority to do so. So when we're talking about what, what it is we are doing for God, we need to continue to get excited about what is happening. We also need to realize that it isn't on our own accord. It is Christ working through us and in us to accomplish those things. Then, then this allows us to move forward directly into our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, verse 25. But before we, before we start reading, because this story is so well known, the story of the good Samaritan is so well known. Uh, for those of you who've been in church for a long time, I want you to think about it from a fresh perspective. I want you to listen to this story by figuring out which character in the story is most like you, that you most identify with. And I'll give you a hint. The answer to that should not be Jesus. Okay. So for anyone who's like, no, I was Jesus in that story. No, you're not. You're wrong. Okay. This is the one time when Jesus is not the right answer in church. Okay. Um, so I want you to think about this though. Also, I want you to think about to whom do I owe this type of love? 
So as you're thinking about what character you best, you best resonate with, I also want you to think as we're walking through the story, to whom do I owe this type of love? Who in my life do I need to show this type of love to, this uncommon type of love that we're about to see in Matthew 10, 25? We're going to start, uh, start at 25 and go to uh, 29, and then we'll take a break. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up, to test Jesus. Okay, we're going to stop there. We got all of like 10 words in. Okay, we're going to stop there. Okay, this is an entrapment. Okay, this is a guy um, who are do, who's doing his best to try to throw Jesus off his game and get him to say sorry to Jubal. Okay, it says, it says um, an expert in the law. Now, this isn't like a lawyer. Okay, in the same way that we would think of a lawyer. Okay, this is somebody who was well-versed in Jewish law, in the Old Testament, the, the first five books specifically. Is he is someone who would have been a scholar in that area. And so what he's doing is he is going to try and weigh what he knows because he is an expert in that portion versus what Jesus is saying. Okay, he's going to try to compare those two and try to find a flaw in Jesus's logic. Because if he can find a flaw in Jesus's teaching, he can discount everything about Jesus, right? So this is an entrapment that we have going on here. Continue. It says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 26. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? You'll notice that, that Jesus actually does this a lot. What did Jesus just do here? Jesus answered a question with a question, right? He's trying to trap him and Jesus is like, nope, I'm going to flip that around on you. You tell me what it says. You're an expert in the law. Jesus wasn't dumb. He knew who this guy was. He knew what this guy was trying to do. And so because of that, when he asked a question where Jesus clearly knows he's trying to trap him, he's like, nope, let's flip that around. Why don't you tell me what's going on? So verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, the lawyer at this point, okay, is, is he is quoting what is referred to as the Shema from the Old Testament. Okay, the Shema, uh, it, it's, in, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So that's what he about Deuteronomy, but largely that's what he's quoting. And the opening line of the Shema actually says, listen, O Israel. Or hear, O Israel, depending on your translation. It doesn't simply mean to let the sound waves enter into your ears as we use that word listen or hear, right? When someone says, hey, listen up, right? Like me and my wife have to say about a thousand times a day to our kids, hey, listen, listen, are you listening, right? Um, It's not just sound waves going in to somebody's ears. Rather, the word listen here means allow the words to sink in. Provide understanding, Allow these words to generate a response from you. In other words, in Hebrew, hearing and doing are basically the same thing. So when it says, hear, O Israel, you can substitute that and essentially say, do this, O Israel. Okay, and that's largely what the, the opening here. And so um, it, says, uh, it says, love the Lord your God. In context, love isn't simply the warm and fuzzy and emotional energy we feel when we like somebody. Right? It's not the same type of thing necessarily as, as the spouse that you may be sitting next to this morning or the girlfriend or fiance that you may be sitting next to this morning. Okay? It's not the same type of love. 
In the Bible, love is action. You love someone when you act in loyalty. You love someone when you act in faithfulness. And so for Israel to love meant faithful obedience to the terms of their covenant relationship. Faithful obedience to the law. Faithful obedience to Deuteronomy chapter 6. To, to the Shema. Faithful obedience to that love. To like. Those are the terms of the commands that will make up the entire body of the book of Deuteronomy. Obedience to these laws was never about legalism. It was never about trying to earn God's favor. Obedience in the Old Testament is about love and it's about listening. If an Israelite loves God, it will make it easier to listen and absorb his teaching and easier to listen and and absorb his guidance. And that's why the words listen and love are so tightly connected here and repeated through these among different speeches that you would find back in Deuteronomy 6. It's important that, that we remember this isn't about legalism. So when he says, what must I do? This isn't about, this is a, a list of things for me to cross off on a daily basis. It's not about that. And that's ultimately what this lawyer is trying to boil it down to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is my checklist to do to inherit eternal life? It's not about legalism. Let's keep moving. Verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So essentially, he is agreeing with him. He's finding common ground with this lawyer at this point, right? He's like, hey, what do you think the scriptures say? The lawyer says that, and Jesus is like, yep, you're right. Which probably at this point has the lawyer squirming a little bit, because if he can't find something wrong, if he can't find something wrong with this teaching, then ultimately he has to agree with a lot of other things that Jesus is talking about. So he's trying to find a flaw in the fundamental understanding, the fundamental teaching of Christ, And you see that he's seeking clarity then in verse 29. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. Oh, humans. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? He finds the one thing. He's like, okay, well, if we can clarify this. Then maybe, maybe that'll shed some light on it. So the lawyer, this, he just wants to justify himself. He wants to feel good about his answer and feel good about what he does daily. And because of that, wants a very firm on who his neighbor is. And if we can get a firm answer on who his neighbor is, then he'll be able to do his best to only love his neighbors. And then doesn't have to worry about anybody else. To find that lowest common bar, that lowest bar that we can do. And as long as we hit that, then we're going to be okay. As long as I can just squeeze into heaven, I'll be all right. As humans, we try to do our best to figure out this this low bar, the lowest bar that is acceptable, and do it. I can give you an example. Raise your hand if you know how to lose weight here. Raise your hand. There's not enough hands up. It's It's not rocket science. We all know how to lose weight here, right? Eat a lot of green stuff and move. Those are the two things you have to do to lose weight. And maybe an oversimplification, but let's be real, okay? If you say, look, I'm moving great. Chances are you're slimming down unless you have green cake or something like that. I don't know. It's not that difficult. It's not rocket science. But, but it begs the question, why is it then that every single year in America, we as consumers spend $60 billion, billion with a B, on, on weight loss products? It's to find that lowest bar we can like, Look, I, eating green stuff and moving sounds real difficult. So what if I could just take a pill 
and not worry about anything anymore, that would be phenomenal. We are constantly searching for the lowest bar to be able to hit, the lowest acceptable bar to be able to hit. None of us want to eat Swiss chard. I get it. It tastes like dirt and it's terrible. Amen. None of us want to work out regularly because it's painful and it's tiring and it's way easier for us to plop down on the couch and watch other people do physical activity. Right? We're all going to do it today. Man, we're going to get done here. We're going to figure out who, who has the best appetizers for the party that you're going to later on. You're like, I'm going to go there. And then some of us, the pros in the game are going to ask, hey, did you get that new couch that you were telling me about? Okay, I'm in. Right? We are so good at that. And then we have the audacity with the mouthful of chicken wings to yell at the TV. And like, Why can't you catch that? Are you kidding me right now? When if you got subbed in, your greasy chicken fingers would slip, uh, would not be able to catch the ball anytime. Anyway, but it's easier, easier to do that, right? So we look for that lowest bar that we can find. And the lawyer here is doing the same thing in this story. How can I love people to the lowest possible degree and still fulfill the law? And that's what this lawyer is talking about here. So he says, okay, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And rather than Jesus pulling out his Hebrew lexicon and studying the etymology of the word, Jesus responds in a way that Jesus responds quite a bit in these situations. He tells a story and then asks them, asks them the question, turns it around back on them. Right? So this is one of the best known parables in the world. It's Luke ten thirty to 35. It says this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, this trip would have been 17 miles with a descent of 3,300 feet. Okay, this isn't a stroll to your neighborhood park. It's rocky terrain. There's caves everywhere. There's bandits who hide in those caves. Jewish people would not have taken this trip alone because of how dangerous this place was. So moving on. When he was attacked by robbers, go figure, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So a Levite and a priest, they would have been religious figures at the time, right? Levites were actually people um, from the tribe of Levi, and they were set apart as a whole guide in Israel. Okay, so the term Levite and the term priest, man, those people were respected religious figures in the community. Okay, priest would think like senior pastor, Levite think like associate pastor. Okay, they would have been, they would have been employees of the church or at least people who studied the law very closely. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Okay, why a Samaritan? And some of you know this, but why a Samaritan? We need to cover this. Samaritans and Jews didn't hang out. What was this lawyer? Who was this lawyer? He was Jewish, right? Expert in Jewish law. And so because of that, uh, Jesus loves playing devil's advocate here. Probably not the right phrase there for Jesus, but still, he loves picking at this thing. And he says, okay, a Samaritan. Somebody that, that the Jews did not like. They actually thought they were lower in stature than the Jews. They thought that, that they, like, who they were as people was lower than they were. So as he traveled, 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine would have been two common commodities that people carried with them on a regular basis while they were traveling. Wine to soothe the spirits uh, and, and oil to be able to pull infection out of the wound, right? So he had wine and he had oil. Bandaged his wounds. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. That would have been like two days worth of wages or so, and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Most historians agree that two denarii would have been more than enough. But just in case, hey, I'll come back and, uh, and pay you the difference. We love to be the good Samaritan in this story. We love as the church to say, no, that's, that's us as the church, to come alongside people, to love people well. And oftentimes we are. Okay? I'm not here saying like every one of you needs to love people well. You're a priest, you're a Levite, you're a Lord, whatever. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we love and we get infatuated with the idea of being the Samaritan in the story. But there are certain times when we get in our own way and we forget that it's our job to love everybody always. It is our responsibility and not just the church, not FBH, you as individuals. It is your responsibility. It is my responsibility, not members of our church or anything like that. Just us as members of the body of Christ. It is your own and my own responsibility to love everybody always. Regardless of their our timing. Big one, you're I'm going to be late for work. I don't have time to stop right now. Right? Regardless of our, our time, timing, we are to love everybody always. Which leads us to a pretty difficult fill in the blank for us today. And it's this. The church has to stop ignoring issues that we can fix. The church has to stop ignoring issues that we can fix. And I'm not just talking about FBH. I'm talking about the capital C church. I'm talking about all of churches in Christendom. I'm talking about, I'm talking about us as individual Christians on a daily basis. We have to stop ignoring issues that we can fix. And some of these issues are massive. My heart breaks for legislation that was passed in New York two weeks ago. And where are we going to stand in the gap as Christians, right? And that's a massive issue. That's a massive problem to be able to figure out how do Christians actually partner with government and, and have a positive outcome from that and not just get walked on, right? How do we do that? So there's these massive issues that we have to figure out, but there's also these really small daily issues that we need to stop ignoring as well. Some of which are as simple as being able to share Christ with somebody else in your life. And while we need to, uh, to keep up with technology and, and the stage and the, the screens and the lights and all that stuff, it's, it's a necessary thing in our day and age in order to do church. Um, but all of those things ultimately will become white no, noise to those really seeking to encounter God. These things are ear candy and they're eye candy for an hour, hour and a half, depending on how long I want to talk. But they have so little relevance in people's daily lives that more and more of more are taking a path in church because if this is all church is, is Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. By the way, kudos to most of you for making it by 10 this morning. But if that's all this is, that's all Christianity is, is an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, then our culture is just saying, no, you know, that's a hard pass. I got other things that I can do on Sunday morning, like sleep in and make waffles. 
oftentimes Sunday morning isn't really making a difference on Tuesday afternoon or Thursday evening when people tend to be wrestling with the awkward, messy, painful stuff in the trenches of life. It's difficult. Church, we need to simply step out into the neighborhoods that are around us. Partner with the amazing things that are already happening in and among our community and the beautiful stuff God is already doing. We seem to hear for the world to come and knock on our door. If we're just patient, they'll come. They'll come eventually rather than going out into the world. Our greatest mission field is just a few miles off our campus. Literally a few steps from your own front door is your greatest mission field. Your kids, you got young kids, man, their greatest mission field is their school. So for you young parents out there, man, I would encourage you to, to have conversations about your, with your kids. And rather than the first question about asking, asking your kid, uh, you know, if their new friend plays sports or whatever it is, you're going to ask them, ask them, hey, does he go to church? Where do they go to church? Is he, is he a Christian? Man, that is consistently the first question my wife and I ask after, after we ask them their name. And again, they say, I don't know. Um, and they say, well, they go to the church. And I really don't know that, Dad. I don't even know their name. So I don't know how you expect me. But it's the beginning for them to say, okay, the most important thing, one of the most foundational things when I, ha- when I have a relationship with somebody else, when I'm a friend of somebody else, is figuring out if they know who Jesus Christ is. And if they don't, it's my responsibility in order to introduce the two of them. Every day we see a world suffocated by poverty, by racism, by violence, by bigotry, by hunger. And in the face of all that stuff, church, we get awfully, frighteningly quiet oftentimes. We need to be as courageous in those fights because then people would feel like coming alongside of us and fighting alongside of us. Priest and Levi both have an opportunity to fix issues. To show the love of Jesus to people who had real problems that, that they could have fixed simply by stopping and fixing them. But we get so consumed with time and perception that we end up ignoring real life people who have real life problems. And at this point in the story, Jesus just kind of seems to be piling on. He goes to say in Luke 10, 36 and 37, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus is just like, hey, you tell me, bro. Like you were trying to trap me. You tell me what you think. Who is the one who, who is the neighbor to these robbers or to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 37 says this, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Translation, love your neighbor. Your neighbor isn't just the people you share offense with. Your neighbor is everybody, always. Next blank is go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So let's stop for a second and think about who you are in this story. Think about who it is, the lawyer, because my guess is there's a lot of us in here who, who probably relate best with the lawyer. Right? Of us saying, okay, well, if I can just figure out exactly what it is that I have to do, if I can get my my list out and cross off enough things that I'm going to make my way into heaven, I'm going to get there because I did everything that Jesus told me to do. And that's a very legalistic way of looking at our relationship with Christ. And I fall into it too, right? Even when it comes down to what we call spiritual disciplines, if those things aren't, are no longer spiritual and are merely just disciplines, then stop doing them. 
Okay, if you're waking up and reading your Bible so you can simply mark something off and you're not doing your best to, to listen to God and, 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 and allow the word of God to penetrate your heart to affect the way that you're living on a daily basis, those are no longer spiritual things. Those are merely disciplines. So we need to get back to the idea of just of spiritual disciplines. I also want to ask you another question. How is it that you came to faith? Don't share because that would be madness. But how is it that you personally came to faith? Because for me, what happened, I was a lot like Lily. Okay, For me, I was able, I was at home and my mom kissed me goodnight. And we said our prayers and, and, and I told my mom, I said, hey, mom, I want, I want to accept Jesus into my heart. And so I'm sure she was ecstatic and, and uh, I don't remember, but, but we prayed um, and, and I got accepted in the family of God and it was so exciting. And I got baptized about six months later um, and, and it, was, it was phenomenal. But that being said, it wasn't until I was, I was 14 years old and a youth pastor by the name of Josh Lane came to work at a church in my hometown. And he simply invited me to be a part of his life. Me, just this, this little punk kid with one foot in the world and one foot in church. And I had no clue what it looked like to be a Christian as a high school student in the late 90s. It looked like bleach tips and puka shells, I'm pretty sure. But he invited me in. He asked me to come check out his church. He allowed me to teach in his youth group eventually. He allowed me to see what it looked like to have a healthy dating relationship as a Christian. He allowed me to see what it looked like to to have fun in and among people without using drugs or alcohol. He allowed me to see what it looked like to actually pursue Jesus in my daily life. He had no massive program for discipling me. You know what he did? He just loved me. And he, I, I would call him because text messaging wasn't a thing back then. I would call him. It was crazy. You pick up a phone and you dial numbers, right? And then you press the green button and then you waited for somebody to answer on the other side. And guess what? They actually answered the phone. It was crazy. And I would just say, hey, Josh, what are you doing tonight, man? He's like, nothing. You want to come hang, come hang out? Yeah, sure. So we go and we hang out. And sometimes there's nothing spiritual about it. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite times with Josh is he taught me how to play Risk. And all he did was wipe me off the face of the, of the universe, right? And it was incredible. But all he was doing there was just loving me well. He was showing me what it looked like to have a relationship with God and to love other people well. Church, we need to go and love everybody always. Do not under your ability to love people simply by inviting them into your everyday life. By reminding people that you love them best because Christ loved you first. But there are oftentimes uh, barriers to us doing that. And one of the barriers that we most consistently encounter is the barrier of fear. Right? We are nervous that you're going to rock the boat relationally or, or you're going to share about Jesus. They're going to think you're a weirdo or whatever it may be. Or, or maybe you don't, ha- you don't feel like you have the right answers or enough answers for them. What if they ask a hard question? I don't know the answer to it. Guess what? You have to say, I don't know. That's it. Just say, I don't know. But 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. What is perfect love? Who has perfect love? Jesus has perfect love, which means that if we are going to do this thing, if we are going to love everybody always, then we first need to have what? The love of Christ. Christ's perfect love. We have to show mercy and love towards others from a place of overflow, like I said before. 
Does anybody have anybody in your life who, who exemplifies this? Who are like, you know what? There is a person in my life who just exudes love, exudes the love of Christ. I do. I have a few. Uh, but most recently, um, I have a, uh, a friend, and we prayed for him earlier, in Dave Fox. Okay, and and Dave, um, was he was on my pulpit committee, the search committee for the next pastor of, of FBH, and that was kind of my first first taste of Dave Fox. And since then, um, uh, Dave has consistently been someone who just loves me well. Uh, he he invited me to go to breakfast with him one time, and like every other Friday, we've been doing our best to go to breakfast together and that sort of thing. Um, he had to cancel this week because he's like, I'm in the hospital. I was like, terrible reason, Dave. Um, but in my position, there are often times where people want things from me, right? And, and, and that isn't a slam towards anyone. It comes with the territory. I get that. It comes with the territory. And sometimes it's as simple as fixing a table in one of our classrooms. Other times it's to officiate a wedding. Um, other times it's to tell me how they need me to preach a better sermon the following week. Whatever it is, right? They need something from me. And that's good. And that comes with the position of being a servant leader, right? And that's okay. Dave never once asked me for anything. Never once has he asked me for anything. Every time I encounter Dave, he simply wants to encourage me. He wants to pray for me, and he wants to know how he can help me in any way, shape, or form. And it isn't just because encouragement is one of Dave's spiritual gifts. It's because he spends time with Jesus. Every single day he spends time with Jesus. And from his time spent with our Lord, he has perfect help but love people. It's not an option for him. He tries. He's told me so many stories about when he's driving down the road and he'll get a half mile past a person who's broken down and he'll slap his forehead and be like, Dave, what are you doing? And he'll turn around and drive a half mile back, stop and help that person. Like he tries to not love people, but he can't because he has spent so much time with Jesus getting filled up with that overflow. He can't help but love everybody always. It's not something that just flows out of him like it's in his DNA. It's because he spent time with the Lord, and as he does so, he can't help but love other people well. But how does this manifest itself in our lives? Church, if we want to, to be relevant in 2019, we have to realize that the world is not impressed by what we say we believe on the weekends. It's not impressed by it. It's by how we respond to a desperate world during the week. That's what the world is looking for. Our love for God and people is best expressed in showing mercy to people in need. That need doesn't have to be physical, though oftentimes it is. It can be emotional. Maybe you have, have people in your oikos who are having a difficult to love one. Real quick, we're going to call time out right here. Our oikos cards, if you have one of these and you haven't filled it out yet, do so. Pray for those people. God has 8 to 15 people that he has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for you personally to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And if you haven't done that, if you aren't reminding yourself, if you aren't praying over these people, you're going to miss an opportunity to love them well. But maybe there's people in your oikos who are having a difficult time, maybe with the loss of a loved one or maybe with serious illness. One of the most difficult things I walked through was the loss of my dad. 
And one of the pieces of the story I don't often tell is when I found out that my dad was going to have to enter into what was, uh, enter into chemo for what would end up being his last round, I lost it. I remember it was at my grandma's house. I drove over there, right? Because I'm 18 at that point. I drove over to my grandma's house. My dad told me while we were there and I left. I was just sobbing. I left. I used one of those old flip phones, called my friend Caleb, my best friend. And I told him, and he's like, what do you need from me? And I told him, I said, I said, I need to get out of the valley I need to go to a place that, that charges me up, that fills me up. And so yeah, we had spent handfuls of times um, up in Yosemite together. Caleb's a, a park ranger, Indian mountain ranger in the summer, three summers. And so Caleb grew up in the back country of Yosemite. He's like, done. We hung up the phone. I got a phone call a week later from him. He said, all right, it's time to plan our trip. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you told me you needed to go to the mountains. I'm taking you to the mountains. And so me and Sarah, who were, uh, were engaged at the time, uh, or we weren't engaged, we were dating at the time. Um, and uh, we, we went to Caleb's parents' house. And Caleb and I did what 21-year-old dudes did. We went into a room and left our, both of our girlfriends together and said, hey, you two need to be friends. You guys hang out. And we started planning this trip. And Caleb had everything mapped out. He said, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think for food? Can we do this? And I left there. I didn't have to do a thing. Caleb completely and totally took care of it. We landed on a date. He said, all right, man, I'm driving. I was like, done. I won't argue with you. And so then we spent almost a week up in the backcountry together. We backpacked in. We did numerous hikes. We did a bunch of different things. We camped. We got eaten alive by mosquitoes. It was one of the greatest things that a friend could have ever done for me. And we had done it before. It's not like this was strange or new or different or anything like that. Caleb saw a need in my life where I was emotionally drained. I was having the most difficult. I was in the most difficult period of my life knowing that it was a very real possibility that my dad could pass away from cancer. And because of that, he was like, you don't have an option. I'm going to love you to the best of my ability, regardless of what you think about it. So let's go. I'm driving. It was simply a way for my best friend to show me support and help me after what a terrible season of my life. Maybe it's a spiritual need. Maybe the issue is a spiritual issue. Maybe someone in your oikos has been fighting in their faith, bloodied and battered on the side of the road because they've been praying over and over and over again, and there seems to be no resolution. God seems to be quiet or struggling with asking the question of why amid their circumstances. Maybe it's, it's simply stopping in your tracks and praying for them when you say, hey, can I pray for you? And they say, yes. You say, great, let's pray right now. Not, okay, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that in my quiet time. Maybe for some of us, the person in need is in physical pain. They don't have food. They're not going to make rent this week, or they simply don't have enough money to share a good meal. Can I tell you one of the, the greatest blessings that Sarah and I ever received when we were about two years in a marriage, we did at the time, which is unthinkable to me at this point. I'm like, one kid, that's like super easy. What do you do with all your free time? Sorry, all you one kid parents. Um, but we had, we had given Cooper, our son, uh, to the grandparents for the night. They were doing the grandparent thing. And Sarah and I went out for a meal. Um, and we were living in Selma at the time. So, of course, we went to Sal's. And Sarah and I are sitting across from each other at a booth. And we're enjoying our meal. And uh, we get up to pay. And uh, the server was like, hey, you know what? Actually, uh, a couple who was here, they already paid for their meal. They wanted me to hand this to you. And so they handed us just an encouraging note. 
And, and money was tight at the time. I was a youth pastor and Sarah was the stay at home mom. And man, what an incredible blessing for us. It, it was probably like 20 bucks. You know, it wasn't going to put us in the poor house or anything like that. But what an incredible blessing to another believer to just say, hey, you know what? Hey, we love you. We care about you. We want to encourage you. Here you go. And loving everybody always, it doesn't have to take your entire life's work to be able to accomplish. I'm not asking you to take on the state of New York. I'm not asking you to take on the state of Virginia. I'm asking you to merely go to your neighbor's house with a plate of cookies and say, hey, I was thinking about you and praying for you today, and I wanted to give, give you cookies. Right? I, my goal for our church is that all of us would have incredibly fat neighbors. Really, though, man, I'm thinking about you and praying for you so much. If you, you're not done with those other ones yet, that's okay. Throw these on top. I got more. They're fresh. Throw the other ones out as a matter of fact. Man, just love everybody always. But man, church, who is our neighbor? Everybody always. Church, imagine what it would look like if each of us did. That it was important enough to show the world how Jesus loves by simply going out and loving people the way Christ intended for them to be loved by us. We would be on a first-name basis with our actual neighbors. We would know their names and not have to think about it for a long time. That we would, act, we would act different. That we would post differently. People's needs rather than kind of step up to the plate, even when it's hard, because that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ, is step into messiness and step into difficult situations. That's what we are called to do. And that love that we have comes from God. We are serving from an overflow. Church, I hope you recognize that. I hope that's where we get the opportunity to serve from. So as you leave here, man, who is your neighbor? Everybody. Always.